newsletter out this week. Hopefully you all got it. If you didn't get it, that means you're not on my list and I need your email address to get you on my list. Um, but I was doing a little bit of history research, a little bit of church history research for uh, this series that we're going to do now. And uh, when, uh, when I did that, I come across that little quote from Cyprian, the uh, Bishop of uh, Carthage, that I just, I thought that was super. He says, you know, times are really tough, folks, but I found people who can deal with it. They're Christians, and I'm one of them. I like that. I thought, that's great. You know, I'm one of them too, you know, and, and you're, you're some of them as well. What a, what a super, super thing. But I, w- I was doing some research in, into history because I want to start by telling you about the biggest building program in Christian history, the biggest one ever. Uh, I've been to the building. Some of you probably have too. It's St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. It was started in 1506, and it took 600, it took 120 years to build. It was finished in 1626. But the thing that was incredible to me is that it replaced a cathedral that was already there, that had been there for 1,200 years. Folks, you know, we're talking about a long time of Christian history. And the one that had been there for 1,200 years was built on the site of Nero's circus. It's where uh, Nero had had his circus during the years that uh, Christianity was getting started. And this building would be the most magnificent structure in all the world when it was built. It was built to reflect the glories of heaven and to draw all hearts upward to the very place where God resides in invisible places. Michelangelo was one of the designers of St. Peter's Basilica. And for over 120 years, from 1508 to 1628, laborers sweat and bled and died until finally, on top of that foundation of that old cathedral, became the greatest masterpiece of the Renaissance and the largest church in the world. St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican, within the papal enclave of the eternal city, the city on seven hills, Rome. You know, it's a great sight. It's a marvelous thing to see. Uh, You know, I know we're not Catholics, and I know we don't believe in a lot of the things that they do. But, folks, that is a marvelous place. That's a marvelous sight. And you walk in the door, and immediately your eyes are lifted to the heavens to see the dwelling place of God or see the heavens where, where God dwells. But as you can imagine, you know, over 500 years ago, This building was not cheap. In order to pay for it, the Pope came up with a really unique fundraiser. If you've ever been in a church with a building program, you know what a fundraiser is. You know, you have a a plan, you have a plan for people to give, and you 
you have a, uh, you have a, a motto. And, and here's the, the plan that they came up with. They began to sell these things called indulgences. And what those were is, for a price, for a donation, you could get your sins forgiven. If you wanted to go out and sin, you could go out and sin, come back to the church, give a donation to the building program. The priest would bless you and your sins would be forgiven. Just like that. Uh, or you could give a donation to get a relative released from purgatory. Right now. They didn't have to spend their time in purgatory. You could get them out right away. And it was a fundraising campaign with a slogan. You want to hear it? When a coin clinks in the chest, another soul goes to heavenly rest. You like that? Maybe if we came up with something like that, we could raise some money. Another one was, the moment a coin in the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. <laughs> You know, I'm not making this up. This is, this is real stuff. And there was a young German priest who was serving as a professor of theology, and it just rubbed him the wrong way. He just could not abide it at all. And in 1517, this priest, his name is Martin Luther. You've heard of him. He demanded that the church have a discussion about this practice. And he started a protest. And it grew into what we know as the Protestant Reformation. Now, we're not Lutherans. We don't uh, follow all the teachings of Martin Luther. We're not uh, Presbyterians that follow the teachings of John Calvin. We're a Baptist church. We have Baptist beliefs. But Baptist churches and Bible churches and evangelical churches worldwide believe five of the foundational doctrines of the Reformation. And those five doctrines are called the five solas. S-O-L-A-S. Solas is a Latin word that means alone. So these were five doctrines that contain the word alone. And it's very simple. You, 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 know, you can learn them really quick. It's scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and the glory of God alone. See, you've already memorized them. You already know what they are. Those are the five alone doctrines. But in case you have any trouble, remember this little piece of prayer. Um, if I send out a newsletter this week, I'm not committing myself to doing that okay you understand i'm not committing myself to do that every week but if i do i'm going to i'll include this little prayer for you so you can memorize it it's it's really cool and it's got all five of those in it may you love the scripture may god's grace be with you may he grant strengthen and increase your faith christ with you before you behind you to the glory of God alone. Isn't that cool? Cool? May you love the scripture. May God's grace be with you. 
May he grant, strengthen, and increase your faith, Christ with you, before you, behind you, to the glory of God alone. John, I said that a second time because I saw you writing it down as fast as you could. Did we get it all? No, but you'll send the letter. Okay. <laughs> this became more than just theology to me, though, as a Baptist pastor in Utah. Uh, when you're when you're dealing with and and I don't mean to be negative or critical of, of Mormon folks I have a lot of friends that are Mormons and we you know I've had a lot of good times with Mormons one of the guys on our basketball team here in Cortez is, is a Mormon uh, I give him a hard time all the time and he dishes it back um, but uh, you know they they believe in the scripture they believe in the Bible plus the Book of Mormon. And so I would say, no, it's the Bible alone, Scripture alone. They believe in grace after everything you can do. They believe in faith along with their works to get them to heaven. They believe in Christ and Joseph Smith and the Mormon Church and the prophets. And so it became more than just theology to me, trying to figure out how to minister to them, how to how to witness to them. And the pastor of the church in Salt Lake City before me, uh, I was I was visiting with him one day. His name was Andy Hornbaker. Uh, tremendous man. I love Andy Hornbaker. Uh, he was nothing but supportive to me from the very moment I went there. And this is the way he explained this to his Mormon friends. He said, a Christian is one who trusts in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. So remember that. That's, that's what a Christian is. One who trusts in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And where do we get that doctrine? From the Bible alone. And why do we preach it and teach it? For the glory of God alone. You know, it's not to lift ourselves up or to lift any other man up or any other person up or to build a church or any other reason than to bring glory to God. Now that was Luther's teaching. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. It's the way he taught. Those were the things he said. And as a priest, Martin Luther could read Latin. And the only Bibles in Martin Luther's day were written in, guess what language? Latin. And so you had to be able to speak Latin and read Latin in order to read God's word for yourself. And he thought, you know, it'd be helpful if other people could read God's word as well. And so, like the... Uh, determined, little, dedicated servant of God that he was, he translated the Bible, starting with the New Testament, from Latin to German, so that any German who could read could read the Bible for themselves. And I think that was one of the things that uh, helped his movement was because they could now read not just what the priest said the Bible said, but 
They could read it for themselves. In 2017, notice I just jumped ahead 500 years, okay? In 2017, a new museum opened in Washington, D.C. You guys have probably, some of you have heard about it. Uh, Jennifer and I had the, had the privilege of, of visiting it the next year in 2018. It's called the Museum of the Bible. And it's a tremendous, anybody else been there? You know, you'd have to have been to D.C. just in the last couple of years. Uh, but it's a few blocks away from the Capitol, close enough that, to walk. Jennifer and I walked down there. And it's seven floors dedicated to the Bible, to the words of the Bible, the people of the Bible, the lands of the Bible, the text of the Bible, the languages of the Bible. You know, Jennifer and I pretty much spent a whole day there. And we just barely got started in, in looking at it. It, it, it. You could spend a week there, one day on each floor, I think, and, and, not, uh, and not see it all. But that museum is dedicated to one book. And it's the one you can hold in your hand. It's the one you have in your house. You know, right, right here, I have the copy on my iPad that I read. Actually, there are actually seven Bibles here in my hand. That's one of the benefits of having an iPad. Uh, there are five that I can read and two that I can listen to. And I, just, I went to my computer software, to my Bible software on my computer. There are 22 Bibles. On Some of them are kind of duplicates, but there's 22 different Bibles that I can access all of those on my iPad. All I have to do is switch over to a different program and I can access any one of those 22 Bibles on my iPad. And I'll turn around and look behind me. There are 20 or more on the shelf behind me. i got too many Bibles. Just think how, how often I'd have to read just to get them all read. And to top all that, I just bought a new one. On New Year's Day, I bought a brand new Bible to go on my Kindle and I liked it so much I ordered a hard copy that'll be here on the fifteenth. Uh, so you know it's a it's it's a chronological read through the Bible in one year uh, Bible as I set out to uh, to read through the Bible in this year that uh, I decided that might help. And uh, I'm three days into this year and we haven't missed a day yet. I mean we are on track, right? Good job. Now, I'm not telling you any of those things to brag. I'm, I'm sure most of you have Bibles as well, many Bibles as well. 88% of Americans report owning a Bible. And the average American home has 4.4 Bibles. I'll bet we beat that. But the average American home has 4.4 Bibles. And probably none of us, myself included, read them as much as we ought to. But it is a book that has importance to all of us. And Paul told his spiritual son Timothy why it was so important. I want to read this verse to you, these verses to you. I'm going to start in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Verse 16 is the verse that you'll be really familiar with. But I'm going to start with verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe. You know those who taught you, 
and you know that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about the Bible this morning. You know, I'm going to be done by 1130. Uh, I could preach about and on the Bible for uh, an hour or more just off the top of my head, and you don't want me to do that. Uh, and then we're going to talk next week, I think, about grace. Uh, and you know that I can preach on grace forever and ever because I do that all the time. Uh, as a matter of fact, when we get through with this series, I'm going to go back and preach the series on grace that I preached the first uh, January that I was your pastor. Uh, because Brother Don wants it on tape, and I don't want to preach him by myself down here. So I'm going to preach him to you again so we can get him on, uh, on audio. Same with faith, you know, we could preach on faith for, we, and we could make this series stretch all year, just talking about God's word, grace, faith, Jesus Christ, because we talk about Jesus every, every week, and the glory of God. And we just finished a series where we traveled with Moses across the desert as we began with the glory of God and we ended with the glory of God as he sought the glory of God. And so we, we want to look at, at God's word. In Deuteronomy, we, we read Moses' words for over a thousand years before Paul wrote this about God's word. Moses said pretty much the same thing. Deuteronomy 32, verse 45, Moses said, or the scripture says, after Moses finished reciting all these words to all of Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all these words I am giving as a warning to you today, so that you may command your children to carefully follow all the words of this law. For they are not meaningless words to you, but they are your life. And by them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess." That was part of his farewell address to the children of Israel before he went off to uh, Mount Nebo to look into the promised land and then die up there on the back of that mountain. And so let's look at what Timothy said, or what Paul said to Timothy. He said, all scripture is inspired by God. The word inspire means to breathe, to, to breathe out. And what, Tim, what Paul is saying to Timothy is Scripture is God's breathing out of his word. It's God's breath. It's inspired by him. It's breathed by him. And it's profitable for four things, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness for a good reason, that the people of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. And so Paul says, it, it, it does everything, and it's for everything. You know, it's just kind of all-inclusive. All Scripture is God-breathed. Now I want to stop just for a second and talk about that. That's, what we know about this is the inspiration of Scripture. 
And, and a lot of people just, just have the, the question and sometimes the, the misconception of how God inspired the Bible. There, there are several different theories. There's the uh, spiritual genius theory in that says that God uh, just had some spiritual geniuses. Paul and Moses and Matthew and and he just kind of left it to them and they wrote what they wanted to do and if what they wanted to and, and if you follow that belief you can come to the uh, conclusion that one of my uh, pastor friends in the first church that I pastored he was a he wasn't a Baptist pastor but we were having a discussion one day and uh, his comment to me was well, he says, I think Paul was mistaken on that point. And, and, and I know my jaw dropped because I hadn't ever, think, I, I had, I had never even considered the fact that Paul could have been mistaken on that point. But if you have the genius theory, the spiritual genius theory, I, you know, all, geniuses aren't right all the time. Even Dr. Fauci isn't right all the time, you know. <laughs> Geniuses aren't always right. Uh, then there's the mechanic. On the other end, there's the mechanical dictation theory that says that uh, God set a scribe in a room, whether that scribe's name was John or or uh, Paul or Moses or Zechariah or whoever. Paul set him in. God set him in the room, and he gave him what to write word for word. That's called the mechanical dictation theory. Um, there's some problems with that. The biggest one being, it wasn't written by the same author. All you have to do is read it. And you can tell that uh, Romans wasn't written by the same person that wrote the Song of Solomon. You know, they're, they're, different, they're different people. They have different words. They use different uh, languages. As a matter of fact, you can read the Gospels and you know that the Gospel of John was not written by the same person that wrote the Gospel of Matthew because they're so different. Um, and so we don't believe the mechanical dictation theory either. But what we do know, what the Bible claims for itself, is that it's God-breathed. Every word is God-breathed. And that's the doctrine of biblical inspiration that, that I subscribe to. Probably every pastor you've ever had subscribed to uh, and people that you know prescribe to. And it's the plenary verbal doctrine of Scripture. Now, that's, just, that's a big word to say a simple thing. Verbal means that the very words are inspired. In other words, God didn't just inspire thoughts he inspired words that's the reason that sometimes when I'm preaching I'll stop and I'll point out a word and I'll spend some time talking about that word because I believe that that's God's word God put that in there and Jesus said do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets I did not come to abolish but to fulfill for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. He said, you know, not, not even a stroke, not even a comma 
is uh, going to, uh, except Hebrew and Greek don't have commas, but anyway, uh, none of that's going to pass away until all is accomplished. So that's what the word verbal means. The other word that I use that you may not know the meaning of is plenary. The plenary, verbal. Plenary is just a word. You know, scholars can't just come up with common words. They've got to come up with big words to confuse everybody. Uh, and plenary means everything, all, complete, total. It means that every single part of the Bible is inspired. Not just some parts, all of them. Those that, there, you know, there are those that believe that the Gospels are inspired and the stories about Jesus are inspired, but Paul's letters aren't inspired. And it's just, Paul was just writing what he wanted. And, and the Old Testament's not as inspired as the New Testament. That's not true. It's all inspired by God. Paul didn't say some scripture is God-breathed. He said scripture is breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. And then to... To finish that out, those who believe the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture believe that God allowed people, God allowed the men who wrote the Bible to use their own styles. That's why when you read Peter, it doesn't sound like John. It sounds like Peter. When you read both of them, it doesn't sound like Paul. It sounds like Peter or John. They each use their own style. Of writing, we've been studying the book of Hebrews on uh, Wednesday, Wednesday night. And when we started, we talked about who who wrote Hebrews because you know it doesn't say in the Bible who wrote Hebrews. Nowhere does it say who wrote it. So we we were still in here, weren't we, when we started that? Because we had that little discussion sitting around the table here. Mercy, you realize that we're only in chapter eleven, and we started that when we were still in here. You know, you guys are long-winded when you're listening. That's all I can say. You know, it's got it's to be it's got to be you. Um, and and we were talking about who wrote it, and uh, Jennifer finally said, "Well, my opinion is Paul wrote it. It sounds just like him, you know, because you know that that Scripture talks about the ways that I mean, when you read it, you realize that they talk different. Okay, so." So the words are inspired, all the words inspired, their, their styles are, are a little bit different, but it's inspired by God. And he says, and it's good for these four things. And, and that's the, the very essence, the fundamental characteristic of being God-breathed is that it makes the Bible useful. It's practical, it's beneficial. I think maybe the word relevant captures the meaning here. That's because the Bible source is the word of God. It's the breath of God. And so it's vitally relevant to every part of our life. And any time you hear somebody say that God's word is not relevant for today, you can just turn them off. Because they don't believe the Bible. If they believe the Bible, they would know that Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. It's relevant for today. And the relevance is seen in four areas. He says it's relevant, it's useful for teaching. That means it focuses on the instruction given to us on how to live. 
It, uh, it, it, it assumes that we come to the Bible as learners because if there's going to be teaching, there has to be learning, and it's valuable for learners. And that instruction isn't just about heavenly things. It's not just about faith and practice of the church. It's about practical things like how to be a good spouse, how to be a good husband, how to be a good wife. How to be a good parent. Uh, there are financial principles in there. I have a, a five series uh, sermon sermon series on God's finances. How God expects us to handle our finances. You guys haven't ever heard that because I've decided you guys are on top of your finances enough. You don't need me to tell you how how to do it. But uh, th- there there are practical things about how to do your finances biblically. Uh, you know, it, it just has principles for every part of our life. And it teaches those to us. If we take time and we look at them and we read them, it will teach us those things. And then he says it's useful for rebuking. Now, we don't like to be rebuked. Uh, but it really means confronting our wrong ideas. It assumes that people can carry around misconceptions and distortions about God and about ourselves and about life that need to be challenged. You know, just just for an instance, we talked about money. Uh, If you measure your success in life by how much money a person has, The Bible will rebuke you because the Bible measures the success of your life by how faithful you are to God, God's faithfulness. And so if the Bible tells me that my criteria for success is wrong, it's rebuking me. It's saying you need to change your definition to conform to God's definition. You know, of course, there's a jillion ways that you can apply that and places that we can talk about that. And so then the next thing it says is correction. Correction is similar to rebuking, but it focuses not on what you believe, not on your ideas, but on your behavior. It assumes that uh, all of us lose our way in life sometimes, that we can wander off course, we can stray away, uh, we can roam around in circles, but the Bible corrects us and gets us back on track. In life, when it shows us where we are and how to get back on course where God wants us to be. And I need that at times, and you need that at times. I mean, how, how many have ever said something to a spouse or to a friend or to a neighbor, and, and, you, and you walk away and all of a sudden, God's word just begins to eat at your heart. And you realize, you know, that was wrong. I've got to go back and correct that. I've got to go back and say, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry that I hurt you. That was wrong. And then finally, Paul says, it's useful for training in righteousness. The Bible equips us for a spiritually vital life with God. And it provides us with all the equipment we need. You know, um, and, and we need to recognize that that's what the Bible is due. It 
it provides us with a complete spiritual toolbox to have a full and rich spiritual life of devotion to Jesus Christ. They're God-breathed words. The Bible and the Bible alone should be our basis for salvation and for the rest of life. Anything that we read, any suggestions, any steps that we read about that contradicts God's word, we need to reject it or dispute it because we're in dangerous territory when that happens. We're trespassing upon God's turf and it messes with our rich and full spiritual life. Now, back to history just for a second. The dispute that Martin Luther had with Rome wasn't over the inspiration of Scripture or the inerrancy of Scripture because the Roman church affirmed both of those doctrines. The problem was due to the fact that over the course of many centuries, Rome had gradually adopted a view of the relation between church and scripture and tradition that actually placed the final authority somewhere besides the scripture. The infallibility of the Pope. The infallibility of the church. And tradition was conceived as a second source of revelation. And the Pope and the Roman magistrates were viewed as the final authority in matters of faith and practice. And folks, we live dangerously on the edge of that in our day. You know, what, what are some of the sources that we look at as guides for life and guides for living? You know, public opinion? Um, traditions? governments there are a lot of folks who think when the government passes a law or the supreme court makes a ruling that that ought to be okay for our life no matter what the bible says and that's not true that's not true friends what do friends and family say we need to we need to consider them we need to consider their feelings well i want to consider their feelings but i also want to consider god's feelings and god's feelings is that his words are authoritative and so Luther's concern regarding the scripture was that it should be the sole ultimate authority for the church and for Christians uh, the Roman Catholic Church in, the, in Luther's day and in our day believed that the scripture was authoritative for faith and life but it's not the sole ultimate authority you know the Pope just passed a just just passed some kind of a uh, edict saying that abortion was okay. You know, where, where does that come from? It comes from the traditions. It comes from the, the, the granting the church and the Pope authority that belongs only to the Bible. And these reformers, Luther and the other Protestant reformers, said that scripture, traditions, councils, and the Pope do not have equal authority. The authority is God's word. Scripture alone. Scripture alone. I believe that. And I know you know that I believe that. And I believe that you believe that. I, uh, I, was, I was listening to a uh, pastor that I very much respect. He's, he's passed on now. He died. 
Uh, you guys have heard of his name. His, his name was Adrian Rogers. He preached a pass. He preached a message on the Bible one time, and he started it this way. He says, "There's two reasons why I preach the Bible." He says, "Number one, I'm not smart enough to teach anything else. You know, that's where I get all my thoughts. That's how I know what to say. That's how I." I'm not smart enough to teach anything else. And the second reason is because I'm too smart to preach anything else. I know that it's God's Word, and I know that that's what we need to hear. Now, there's one more thing that I want to share with you. Um, I want to go back and, and talk about the reason that uh, Paul gave us these words. And, and we learn that if we go back to the first of the chapter, the first of chapter uh, 3 of 2 Timothy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit down if that's okay. I hope you guys can still see me, but I've got to sit down. My gabapentin has run out. Um, here's what Paul said. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Remember, we started with 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. This is 2 Timothy 3, chapter 1. I mean, chapter 3, verse 1. This was the reason that he brought that up about the Scripture. Okay? But know this. Difficult times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemers, Disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, unreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power, avoid these people. Does that sound like the year we just got through or not? But when he says they hold to the form of godliness, he's talking about church people. He's talking about Christian people that are acting like that. And then he says, For among them are those who worm their ways into households and capture idle women burdened down with sins, led along by a variety of passions, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so these also resist the truth. Men who are corrupt in mind, worthless in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their lack of understanding will be clear to all, as theirs was also. But you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured! Yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people and impostors will come worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have firmly learned and believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, and then all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, 
so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So it was in a time very much like the time that we lived in that Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, the only way to live for God in a world such as this is through the God-breathed word. Through the God-breathed word. It's believing the word of God, holding to the word of God, teaching it, being rebuked by it, being corrected by it when we're wrong and use it as our absolute guide to righteousness that we'll be able to negotiate days like the days we're living in. Don't give up on God's word. The psalmist tells us, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. The word of God is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, righteous, desired, sweeter, and rewarding. That's Psalm 19, verse 7 through 11. You know, Southern Baptist went through a time back in the oh, late 70s and 80s where we kind of had a fight about the Bible because there were those who didn't want to believe it that close, that, that it had that much authority. And uh, we, we had some fights. We had some good fights in the convention over that. Uh, and uh, eventually those who held to the Bible won that fight. And, and this is what they wrote down as the belief for men and women, boys and girls. This is the, it was, it was passed by the convention at the 2000 convention uh, that Southern Baptist held in Salt Lake City. And this is what it said. The Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of himself to men. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation. So, I took 40 minutes this morning to tell you, hold on to your Bible. Believe it. Because it is the only way through this mess. God's Word. Let's pray together.